This is God's word from Matthew 5, 1 through 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the last Sunday of 2013. Uh, As we gather here today, we are actually celebrating the fifth day of Christmas. Um, So according to that well-known ancient French rhyme, we should have been giving each other five gold rings uh, as a token of our affection and esteem this day. Uh, so if anybody has those, uh, don't, don't come up. It's, it's unseemly. Just save them for after. Uh, <laughs> you see, this is about the middle of the church calendar season uh, of Christmas, which follows Advent, uh, the season of anticipation and waiting, and which ends with Epiphany, uh, the arrival of the group of Magi uh, at the home of the infant Jesus. And this uh, culminates on January 5th or 6th, depending on you, how you want to count the calendar. Uh, and, uh, and then that day is what is known as Twelfth Night. And that is the celebration that Shakespeare wrote the play, The Twelfth Night, or What You Will, in order to commemorate. And that play was first performed for Epiphany uh, in 1602. Now, this is a play in which the forces of nature and the self-serving guiles of people work to cause a great deal of confusion. In this story, it is one in which deception seems to rule the day. Yet in the end, it's love, faithfulness, and commitment that come out on top as the world, at least it is as it is in the play, is set right again. It might seem to us that this classic drama motif is much less the inspiration for our understanding of life in this world and and that this understanding is truly the result of the way in which God has worked throughout history and is working in our world and in our lives today. So before we get into God's word here, let's pray together. Father, we want to just lift up this time in your word uh, to you. Let your voice be the voice that we hear. Let your words be the words that come off the page and speak to our hearts. Lord, uh, we desire to know you well. We desire to know you deeply and intimately. And Lord, uh, your spirit is, uh, is who works in us to make that true. So Lord, we just turn this time uh, in your word over to you today. Uh, let this be a, a time where our, our study of your word and our worship is pleasing to you where you bless our lives uh, through a deeper understanding and knowledge of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The season of Advent is, for most of us, a really busy one, right? There is much to do, uh, long lists of things that need to be accomplished. 
Uh, there are gifts to purchase and wrap and send. Uh, there, there are meals to plan and prepare. Uh, there are schedules that need to be made and people need to get from here to there to places uh, where, they, where they're, they're required to be and get there with all of those things that need to accompany them when they get there. Uh, it is a time when we, we visit with friends uh, and uh, family and we receive guests from near and from far away. Uh, it is uh, hopefully... In all of this activity, there is still time to reflect on Jesus, to worship Christ, and to appreciate and anticipate the Savior that is the true heart of the Advent season. The scheduled life and this heavy anticipation are in some ways very much like what it might have been like in the times of Mary and Joseph. They were following the mandates of their religion and their government as Mary traveled that long distance in her advanced state of pregnancy. Uh, They lived in a world where the darkness of tyranny, of poverty, and of religious persecution was the order of the day. All Jews knew that God had made a promise, a covenant with humanity, that we would not be banished from his presence forever. He granted a future pardon for our sin in the form of a Messiah, the Savior, who would come and take upon himself the pain of separation and loss and who would settle the debt that our rebellion had incurred, and who would bring about a return of people to the intimacy of constant, unmediated relationship with our Creator. God's great plan of redemption had begun its final chapter in the most ordinary manner possible with the birth of a child. However, God had also fulfilled his promise in a manner that was in every way the greatest of all miracles. It was something that only God himself could or would have had the audacity to accomplish. The king, the only true and anointed ruler of all creation, was born to this simple peasant girl in a place so far out of the way that it barely had a presence on the roadmaps of the day, a place named with little to commend it. You see, God entered into this world in human form not because this place, this world here, is the way that he desired it to be. So he did not engage in conformity to its culture and in support of its rules of power and oppression. Rather, God came to change it, to overthrow its corrupt systems and to appeal to every one of us who reside here to do the same. Christ did not settle into a life of easy belief and acceptance of worldly interpretations of God's laws of righteousness. After Advent, Christ became a man who spoke the truth of the Father in a manner that was to bring about repentance and a return of people to being true disciples of God. Although Christ certainly provided the promise of eternity, and through his sacrificial blood, we are all granted the opportunity to enter into the surety of permanence with God, he gives us much more. Christ calls us out of a life among the ruins of this world and he leads us into dwelling in the kingdom of God. To me, this is the primary message that Jesus was bringing as he engaged in teaching the crowd that had gathered to witness his miracles and to hear his teaching. In today's passage out of the Gospel of Matthew, we find Jesus in the early days of his ministry years 
he has recently taught in the synagogue out of the prophetic passage of Isaiah 61 that says, in part, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of God and the day of vengeance of our, of our God to comfort all who mourn. Powerful words. Uh, now, a short while later, Jesus takes another opportunity to further teach what it is like to live in God's kingdom. He climbs up to a high place in order that he can be seen and heard by the people in this highly diverse crowd of humanity that has been following him. Among them would surely be many he would have already touched with grace, love, and God's healings of all sorts, both physical and spiritual. In the crowd that day were Jews, Greeks, Syrians, and perhaps a Roman soldier or two. They came because of faith, family belief, curiosity, and even plain skepticism. Jesus knew and was aware of all of this, and he laid bare the truth of what it means to leave behind the world with its false doctrines of self-centered achievement and worth that is based upon strength, looks, charisma, charm, wealth, power, or other external means of expression. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard had this to say about Jesus' teaching here. What we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teachings on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our bodies. It concludes with a statement that all who hear and do what he there says will have a life that can stand up to everything. That is, a life for eternity because it is already in the eternal. Jesus sits down in the manner of a rabbinical teacher who is preparing to deliver a lesson. And as the people now focus their attention on his face in order to clearly hear the words that he will speak, Jesus says something very strange indeed. He says, Blessed are the beggars, the wretched poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. The word that is used in our text here for, for, the, for poor literally means beggar. And it's the, word, the Greek word potochos, uh, from a root that means to cover up or to cringe, as if I am sitting on the street corner in absolute destitution. And as I sit there, I reach out my hand in, in pleading to all who pass by to give me something to sustain me for the rest of the day but I am so ashamed that I cover my face and I cringe away from them because I don't want them to see me. I don't want them to know who I am. I am, I am so ashamed of my state. He uses a very powerful term here for the idea of being poor. It's not, it's not like the, the widow with her two cents in Luke. There's a different word used there, which means literally one who has very little, but she has two cents. The word that, that is rendered here is one that suggests nothing, having absolutely nothing. And, uh, and it's this, this very strange statement, because we might join the crowd in being taken aback momentarily by this. 
We expect Jesus to commend us for our virtuous and diligent study of God's word or for our faithful attendance in church. But instead, he speaks a blessing, a statement of profound spiritual joy and happiness upon those whose religious bank accounts are absolutely empty. They are so empty that the bank itself has closed the account. He he does something that is just totally contrary to what we might expect. And as he does this, what is he saying to us? He's telling us that all of the things that we normally as, as, as people, as human beings, as Americans, as Westerners, as modern folk, rely upon, trust upon, uh, count as our, as our foundation for who we are and our strength in this world, all of these things, our, our intelligence, our diligent study, our hard work, our, our absolute type A drive in this world, all of these things are useless when it comes to entering into the kingdom of heaven. What we truly need, what we truly require, what, what fills us up, what meets those needs that we have is Christ himself. The Lord is sitting there saying, there's only one thing that you need in this world. There's only one thing that is of any real value, and that is your relationship with God. Nothing else. All else is emptiness. Without God's grace, without his love, without his care, without his engagement with our lives, our lives are meaningless. And with them, our lives are absolutely filled to overflowing with value and worth and purpose and mission. That's what Christ, how Christ opens this time of teaching with this crowd of people who are coming expecting this, this great, great teacher, this rabbi, possibly the Messiah, the one to save them, the one to overthrow the oppressive Roman rule, the one to bring the nation back into its greatness. And instead he opens up with this simple statement about becoming empty of all that we've claimed in the sense of our religiosity and our, and our strength, and says all is from God. The fact that he does this thing at this point in time suggests to me very strongly that God is saying to us, that Christ is saying to us, that it is this humility of spirit, this desire, this, this willingness to say, what I have is of nothing unless it is from Christ, what I understand is nothing if it does not come out of God's word and through his spirit and into me, out of my relationship to God through Jesus Christ. If that is not who I am and that is not what I stand for, then what I have is bankrupt. And if that is, it is and, and he says, therefore, the, the starting place of growing in your relationship with God and of becoming men and women who live lives that are, filled with his presence and useful in his kingdom is this place of humility, this place of bankruptcy, this place of brokenness, this willingness to say, I have nothing, Christ, you have it all. I want what you have. So Jesus goes on from there. And, and then he says another really odd thing. Uh, he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. For theirs, for they shall be comforted. Mourning, that's not what you would expect at this point in time. 
this absolute sense of loss, the sense of all being sadness and all being and being filled with with these tears of grief, that your heart is overcome with them, that your body is flooded with them, this sense of abject mourning. But that's where Christ goes with this. And the word that he uses for comforted is very interesting here because he uses a term that says, you'll be walked alongside of. Same root as paraclete, uh, paracletos. And you will be walked alongside of. You will be you will be accompanied through this journey, through this time of loss, through this time of grief, through this time of mourning. God is saying, I will walk with you when you mourn deeply. What is he suggesting that we should be mourning? I think he's suggesting that we should be mourning the lost in this world, the pain that death brings, the pain that illness brings, the, the struggles that we have in life, all of these were not part of God's creation intention. All of these are part of this world in which we dwell now as a result of sin after the fall and before the, the restoration of it all. All of this is a part of this world where we now dwell. And we should mourn this. This is not how God intended it to be. And, it's, and, and we can enter into and we can take the loss that we feel and the and the, the, the pain and the separation and the grief and the hurt and the struggles that we have, and we can take those to our God and be honest and be real with them and be transparent with them and say, Lord, I trust you to walk through this with me because you know me well and you know the pain well because God says he grieves. But also, I think he wants us to mourn our own participation in the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world. There are none of us, I, I, can, I, I believe I can say this with absolute safety, there are none of us who are not participants in this. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all are sinners in need of a Savior. We all are saved by grace alone. And we can mourn for our participation in this. We can be caught up in the reality of that and say, Lord, I know that I need you because you are the only one who brings me out of my sinful flesh and into the reality of your grace and your glory. And we can mourn for that, for our own participation. And we can take that mourning and, and know that Christ walks with us through this life, through that mourning, and that he is the one who will heal our wounds, heal our sinful behaviors and attitudes and thoughts, and take us into the fullness of his desire for our calling in this life. We can trust him with that. So Jesus goes on, and he says, Blessed are the meek, or the gentle. Uh, this is a, the word here is an idea of gentleness with a real sense of humility attached to it for they shall inherit the earth. That is, again, an odd, contracultural statement. Everybody in Jesus' time was expecting, all of the Jews in Jesus' time were expecting their Messiah to come with might and with power and raise up an army. They were looking toward the armies of the Old Testament God that would raise up and defeat the enemy. And they were seeking that, that, that warrior victor king Jesus says, 
the gentle ones, those who, who, who treat the world with, with a sense of care, with a sense of the soft touch that a mother has for a newborn baby. Those are the ones who will truly inherit the earth. They're the ones who are stepping into the kingdom that God has ordained. It's not, he did not ordain a kingdom of might, a kingdom of warriors, a kingdom of warfare and, and an oppressive control. He ordains a kingdom of, of love and grace and righteousness. And that is the kingdom that uh, Jesus is saying we will inherit if we choose to walk through life with this, this gentleness of attitude. And as you think in terms of the people that you know in this world and the situations that you know in your life, how many of them demand gentleness? How many of them are ones where we may be encountering someone who is not pleasant to us, someone who is not easy to, gain, to engage with, somebody who is, uh, is truly either hard to be with or somebody who is truly antagonistic, somebody we would call an enemy? How hard is it to turn and be gentle with that person, to be caring, to enter into their story, to hear who they are and to care about them? Martin Luther King said this, Jesus understood the difficulty inherent in the act of loving one's enemy. He realized that every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. This is the opposite of the world's way of using power, control, and might in order to obtain it all. We're called upon by Christ to sacrifice, to be yielded to the gospel, and, and to give with, with no anticipation of getting. This is being gentle in our world. At this, at this point, Jesus makes a statement that flows right out of the daily life experiences of many in the crowd. For hunger and thirst were common experiences in those days and in that part of the world. Yet he says that our hunger and our thirst are to be for something even more basic, more vital to life than food or water. We are to desire and to seek God's way in both what we do and in who we are. This is righteousness. Expressed in the language of both the source in Isaiah, the Aramaic that Jesus was probably speaking, and the, the Greek text is the concept of justice. All of those words that are used for righteousness carry with them always the concept of justice. And uh, that justice is, is, a, is an inherent characteristic of God. Righteousness and justice are inseparable in God's view. So we are called to be people who have an unrelenting, a primal, if you will, drive to see others treated in a manner that is just. This is a standard of thought and of engagement with life that is only possible to seek after if we are intimately know the one who has established and who defines its boundaries for us. Christ is our only hope of living as one who possesses such a craving, and he is the one unique and true source of its satisfaction. We hunger and thirst after God, after him himself. We, we were therefore should have this deep and hard to satisfy desire to serve him in a way that is honoring to who he is, to this very, very basic nature of his, of his character, righteousness and justice. And we, we should be called to be people who care for those who are treated unjustly 
and, and seek to bring about that form of God into the world around us. Christ then lays out mercy, the Greek word elimon, which means generous in doing deeds of deliverance. Generous in doing deeds of deliverance. And the emphasis here that he puts on this is those who enter into the pain and the suffering of our world. The, the, the merciful are those who are willing to step into the places where pain exists, where suffering is rampant, where loss is the, the word of the day, where comfort is unknown, where love is unheard of. He is, he's saying that we, we as his followers, as his disciples, should be ones who are willing to enter into that place in life that is terribly uncomfortable for us because it places us so vulnerably at the edge of what we fear most, being in the same state. And yet he is saying that this is where we need to go. We need to be willing to follow him. And as we do this, we will receive the mercy that we need from God in order to do this well. He's saying that he is the one who provides us with what we need to be merciful people. Mercy is not always our greatest strength, not always our biggest human uh, characteristic. And yet mercy is a very a real, very prevalent characteristic of our God. From there, he goes on to, to talk about um, being ones who are pure in heart, for they will see God. He calls us to a standard of purity that is an impossibility. Frankly, this is something that we cannot do. I, I, again, I will say this with absolute certainty, um, it, that there is not one of us here who is capable of being absolutely pure in heart. Uh, this idea would lead the Hebrews and his audience into, uh, a, should lead them rapidly into a, an understanding of something very basic to their faith. Uh, the, uh, the Shuma, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this is a basic expression of what, uh, God, what Jesus is teaching here, that uh, we should be pure in heart, because this is the definition of purity in heart, loving the Lord with everything we have, giving him our all, that nothing is held back, nothing is with, withdrawn, nothing is kept private and personal. Everything we are is committed to loving the Lord. And that is the essence of this. The basic idea that he has on display here is the avoidance of all contamination. But as all of them, and I suspect all of us know, this is not a human possibility. We simply cannot walk in this flesh through this world without ending our day covered in contaminants. The purity on display here comes from Christ and is imparted to us as God's gracious gift. And knowing God is the result of this sort of singular focus that places God and his will above all else. The final blessing that we are looking at today here uh, that Jesus confers is for those who are peacemakers. 
for he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I want you to, I'm going to have us reflect for a moment on the very specific language here. Uh, this is a tangible mark of followers of God, for God set out to bring about peace as the most fundamental and significant level. That is, peace between himself and his creation. As ones who are fully dependent upon God's grace, who take the painful separation that sin brings upon our world deeply to heart, with an attitude of walking gently through our world, hearts directed to knowing God in an ever-deepening way, as people who make justice our mission while comforting those who are in distress, as we surrender our whole beings to God and to the calling of knowing him, we should be people who are led to seek peace with all people in all situations. And as we seek to do this, we will certainly be driven even further out of our own strength and, and competency and even deeper into Christ as our entire sufficiency. Note that the, the result here is that as we become peacemakers, we will be called. And I think that's a very deliberate statement here. The world will know us as sons of God. God is the peacemaker. He is the one who had a plan from the moment that we decided to become disloyal to him, to, to step out of his will and become disobedient children, to be sinners. He had a plan for how that gulf, that gap, that, that disagreement, that conflict would be, would be taken care of, would be restored, how we would be restored into relationship with him. That plan has existed from the beginning and it is being carried out as, as we read the stories in the scriptures and as we look at Jesus, as Jesus came as this infant and as he grows to be the man who we are seeing teach in this passage and as he, he moves through life to the inevitability of his crucifixion and his resurrection and as we anticipate his final return and ultimate restoration all of this is a, is a story about God's being a peacemaker with his creation. He is leading us into the, the peace, the deep, heartfelt, soul-felt relationship with him that brings us into true peace in this world. This is the thing which allows us to walk through this disturbing and distraught planet where we live with a sense of the true peace of Christ in our hearts. This is the thing that allows us to face illness and loss, the thing which allows us to face all of the other struggles, financial, relational, uh, everything that we deal with in this world with, a, with an understanding that there is a greater purpose for it all, that there is truly something that God has in store for us through all of this that is glorifying to him and is edifying to the world around us. This is, this is the simple truth of his reality, that we, as we choose to live in his kingdom, living in the here and now in the kingdom of God, we are living in the peace that he brings into our world. This is the promise that God has made from the beginning of time for us, and this is the promise that Christ fulfills for us as he came into the world and as he is leading us into living as ones who follow him well, who follow God completely, who give our all to him. 
you know, as we dwell after Advent in this season of Christmas, Christ calls upon his followers to live in direct contrast to the world where we were born. He tells us that the seemingly impossible is tangible and real as we choose to leave behind the kingdom of man and allow him to work in our hearts and our minds to transform us into people who in fact dwell here and now in the kingdom of God. Christ's declarations of blessing are not an impossible ideal, nor are they a promise for a future time. Instead, they are a calling for each of us to respond to. They define the inner being and the outer expression of the Christian faith and experience. These statements are the expression of grace as delivered to all who will believe, and they are delivered by Christ himself. As Paul said in Romans 12, uh, first two verses, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Christ's calling in these, these, this short piece of teaching is that we would allow our, no longer allow ourselves to be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by this renewing that the Holy Spirit does in us. This work of Christ in us. It's not of us. It's not of our hands. It's not of our might. It's not within our capabilities. It's all Christ. As we empty ourselves and turn to him, we truly can be transformed and turned into ones who are kingdom dwellers, ones who live here in this world today, tomorrow, in the kingdom of God, and who bring the touch of God and the peace that he promises to the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you because you have given us clarity of thought to, to enter into the confusion and the, the, the noise and the clamor of our world. Lord, you are the one who provides us with all that we need to uh, walk through this world in a manner that is glorifying to you, that is fulfilling of your calling and your mission for us, Lord, and we thank you for all of this. As we come together now in a time of gathering around your table in communion, Lord, we, uh, we uh, ask that you would open up our hearts and reveal to us things which we may need to know, things which we may need to repent of, things which we may need to relent of. And Lord, we ask that you would give each of us a real understanding of you, your will and your desire for us. So Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this chance to gather around your table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.